You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I went on a five and a half mile hike with some friends, triggered a film bro, had some Pliny. Other than that, I've I've pretty much lived at work this week. But I am recording this after hanging out with my friend and her baby for a few hours. One of our other friends hadn't met him yet because she doesn't live in the area. So I bribed my way in there with coffee because I never get to see him in the daytime because I always hang out at night when he's sleeping or winding down. So I, I, I invited myself over because I was going to have FOMO. But yeah, I bought I bought coffee for six, five people, six people this morning. Just be like, hey, I will uh, I'll come over and, you know, not feel guilty about basically, basically just inviting myself over. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got the 2024 animated Oscar shorts. Right now, I'm on what is likely a fool's crusade to, for the first year ever, see every single film that's nominated for an Oscar this year. Just like from like the the longest film to the shortest short. I'm trying to get all of them in before, what, two weeks from now, I think it is. So far, I'm at about 70% towards completion, which I think is the highest I've ever viewed a year's films because sometimes the shorts are hard to find, but I did not have an issue this year. I've actually seen them all, but the animated ones are the only ones actually caught in the theaters because they were tricky. So this year, with the exception of probably War is Over, which I thought was a little heavy handed and melodramatic, is a year of animated short bangers. They've been mostly duds, I feel like, the last few years, but this year was phenomenal. A few of them were like super dark or had really insane twists, too. Like definitely not animation for kids. I don't think any of them really would be like something you'd want to show like an eight year old. Maybe my uniform, maybe my uniform. But yeah, my uniform was innovative as the entire short took place on pieces of real clothing. So like the canvas was like actual pieces of clothing. Letter to a Pig was ethereal and was another interesting like mixed media animation style. They intermixed like actual photography with um with drawing, which was pretty interesting to see. There's Pachyderm, which was beautiful, but unbelievably heartbreaking. But my favorite was probably 95 Senses which had such a twist in the middle of it, it gave me whiplash. It is truly incredible the amount of storytelling that animated filmmakers can do in like basically less than 10 minutes. If you do get a chance to see them, jump on it. I'm not sure how available the shorts programs are outside of major cities or at least LA and New York, but hopefully they're around. I went to an AMC. I think other theaters do it as well, but something to consider if you are curious. 
My Criterion Collection recommendation of the week is Spine number 1218, which is a freshly announced one, and that is Anatomy of a Fall. This film is up for Best Picture this year, and since I've been watching Oscar-nominated films all week, I didn't get a chance to see anything new, so I'm cheating a little bit and saying this one, because you might want to uh, see it before the Oscars in a couple of weeks, because it is one of the, the better ones. And now, on to this week's topic. This week, a look into the life, so far, of one of the biggest Western stars who became equally as well-known for his work behind the camera, Clint Eastwood. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? An 11-plus-pound beast of a baby was born on May 31st, 1930 in San Francisco, California. His name was Clint Eastwood Jr., the son of a salesman and an engineer. The family was working class by most accounts, that is disputed though, and very religious. If you know your U.S. history, you probably realize that Clint was born roughly six months into the Great Depression. So, you know, not the most ideal time to have a new mouth to feed. As a result, the family was forced to move around a lot as the senior Clint took any job that he could. Eventually, the family settled in Piedmont, California, where Clint would grow up. He would first become interested in film around this time as his father would take Clint and his younger sister to the movies quite often. Unsurprisingly, Clint had a penchant for the Westerns. Young Mr. Eastwood was a poor student. The moving around in the early years hadn't helped, to the point where he was held back in middle school, and despite the fact that he had athletic and musical abilities, he avoided the formal clubs. Teachers would try to get him into the plays and onto the sports teams, but he continuously refused. According to Clint, all he had on his mind were, quote, fast cars and easy women. Didn't hurt that he was super tall and pretty handsome, so he had that going for him. At this stage also, Clint, who was a pretty good piano player, was considering joining a jazz band when he grew up. He'd also lie about his age to get into jazz bars and was incredibly passionate about the piano and would play until his fingers bled. It is unknown if he actually ever graduated high school. There is some discrepancy. So with high school in the rear view, the future actor bounced around the West Coast for a few years. His parents had moved to Seattle by this point, before ending up being drafted into the military in 1951, where he worked as a projectionist and lifeguard. On September 30th, 1951, Clint was in a bomber flying from leave in Seattle back to San Francisco when the plane crashed near Point Reyes, California, and he and the other person in the plane had to swim back to shore. A year later, he would leave the service and at the insistence of some actor buddies he met while enlisted, ultimately landed in Los Angeles. During his early days in Tinseltown, Clint worked managing an apartment house. I had to look up what that was. An apartment house is basically an apartment building that just looks like a normal house from the street. So it hides the fact that that's actually an apartment building and not a house. And that was in Beverly Hills, so not surprising. So that was his day job. And he would work at a gas station by night when he wasn't cruising the jazz clubs and, you know, doing the other stuff that L.A. people in their early 20s tend to do. 
He would also briefly attend L.A. City College for acting classes and held several odd jobs while being a gigging actor, which included digging foundations for swimming pools during the early stages of his film career. In May 1953, 23-year-old Clint was set up on a date with 22-year-old secretary Margaret Neville Johnson. They married in December of that same year, but he dated other women throughout the entire relationship. It also bears mentioning that a different girlfriend up in Seattle was seven months pregnant at the time of the nuptials. This woman, her name has never been publicly released, gave birth to a daughter in February 1954 and placed the infant up for adoption. Clint's interest in acting began growing in these early days in the City of Angels, and he began taking further acting classes. He also went on auditions because there's no real rules for training versus when you can get a role, frankly, and acted in regional theater productions. He also began writing scripts and pounding the pavement at the studios trying to land a job. You could get a little bit further with that back then than you could today because security was significantly more lax back then. It still existed, but it was in a bad. Conversely, today, I sometimes have issues getting to certain parts of the backlot I work on with my badge, despite the fact that I'm in a golf cart with my badge and the golf cart is from the lot. It's... It's it's wild some days. They are doing heavy construction, though, so maybe it's that. But yeah, very, very different world back then. A chance meeting with a cinematographer led Clint to a meeting with director Arthur Lubin, best known for directing Abbott and Costello in their earliest films. Lubin was an independent producer at this stage and got Clint a contract at Universal for either $75 or $100 a week, depending on the source. He got that contract under the condition that for the love of God, dude, get some more acting classes. By this point, he had the basic skills, but he was very, very green at this point, like 1954, early 1955. He also had a quote unquote whistling whisper as like a voice, which he would ultimately go to a speech specialist to correct, but he couldn't get rid of it. And eventually when, you know, stuff worked out, it became a trademark of his. Clint's first film with Lubin was an uncredited role in Lady Godiva of Coventry from 1955, followed by a larger role in Francis in the Navy from the same year. The film is the last in a series of films about a talking mule named Francis. While being under contract, this allowed him to move into better accommodations, but the actor still had a problem he couldn't do much about, his face. Clint was deemed too handsome to be a character actor, but not handsome enough to be a romantic lead. You know, the two types of roles available in the 1950s. That, coupled with his inexperience and the bad reputation that followed it, the actor was thrown into B and C tier horror films like 1955's Tarantula. Universal would end up terminating his contract after just about 18 months, but he'd at the very least gotten a few miles under his belt. The tiny roles in the B-movies and the acting classes and just general hustle ultimately led Clint to landing a major supporting role on the CBS series Rawhide in 1958. The actor was not super thrilled about the role's quality. He was almost 30 at this point and found the character of Rowdy Yates to be a little bit too naive and oafish for his taste. But the role would secure work for the actor for the next stage of his career. And Rawhide ended up being a modest hit, enough so that it ran for eight seasons. And that meant like seven-ish years of a steady paycheck, which for an actor, pretty sweet deal. 
As I briefly mentioned last month, Clint's contract with CBS stated that he could not accept a role in any other U.S. film production. Even during the summer hiatus for the show, he could work on Paramount Films, but they didn't want to hire a TV actor for a lead role. But he couldn't like go over to, you know, say Warner Brothers and start a movie over there. So he had to be a Paramount, but they were going to put him in movies because he was a TV star and there wasn't a lot of mobility back then for that. So instead, Clint found a little bit of a loophole. Italian director Sergio Leone had been searching high and low for an American actor, preferably, to star in his upcoming Western, A Fistful of Dollars, but was having trouble finding an American actor who would do the job for the shit pay. It was like 10 grand, I think. Leone had seen Clint in Rawhide and thought the actor would actually do nicely. Leone later cited it was Clint's slow manner of moving, which he described as cat-like as well as the fact that Clint looked good with or without a cowboy hat on that were deciding factors. Clint accepted the role of the morally gray man, a photo negative of his rawhide character, and flew to Europe for production with the character's costume in his luggage. The poncho the actor would ultimately wear for all three of the Dollars films was forbidden from being washed. Clint thought it was a kind of like a good luck charm type situation. After a series of copyright claims, you may also recall that the film was based on Akira Kurosawa's film Yojimbo. The film released in the U.S. in 1967, three years after its Italian premiere. The film was met with great success and launched the spaghetti western genre. The film and its sequels, 1965's For a Few Dollars More and 1966's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, had by this point already made Clint a European film star and now that success began to transfer stateside. So did the image of the cigarillo-smoking, barely-speaking, morally ambiguous man with no name played by Clint, which revitalized the Western genre and changed the type of cowboys that would appear on the silver screen. For Clint Eastwood, it would also lead to bigger and better roles. Also, fun fact, Kurosawa actually won the plagiarism lawsuit and received $100,000 in U.S. money and 15% of the film's box office. Kurosawa would later joke that the most successful film he'd ever been a part of financially was A Fistful of Dollars. By this point, Clint and Margaret had been married for a tumultuous 15-ish years. Clint did what, and frankly, who he wanted throughout, and had told his wife thusly that he was going to be this way before they had even gotten married. He even had his accountant create two ledgers of his spending, so his wife wouldn't know how much he was spending on all his womanizing. Overall, it was reported that Margaret was okay, or at the very least resigned, with the unconventional setup as he had always come home to her. The two eventually had two children together, a son in 1968, and a daughter four years later. Before that, though, he had carried on a reported 14-year affair with Roxanne Tunis, a stunt woman and actress on Rawhide. The relationship yielded Clint's first legally recognized child, a daughter in 1964. The child was given her mother's surname, but Clint financially supported them, while also kind of adding the asterisk, just kind of keep it a little bit of a secret. The daughter's identity would not be revealed until the 1980s, but Margaret had known about her and had even met her husband's daughter after an unannounced visit to the Rawhide set. After the success of the Dollars trilogy, Clint was in huge demand. The money he'd made on the films also allowed him to set up his own production company, Malpaso Productions, named after a creek near his Monterey home. 
Clint's goal was to show the film industry that you didn't need these huge numbers of crews and behind-the-scenes people and executives to create good film. Going forward, Malpaso has been the production company for the majority of Clint's films. Not the distributor, mind you, the production company. They're different. Clint's first major role post-Dollars and the first Malpaso film was Hang 'em High from 1968, which saw the actor playing a man who becomes a marshal to exact revenge on a crew of vigilantes who hung him and left him for dead. The film is considered a revisionist western, meaning more spaghetti western in style, but as it was a Hollywood film... That meant it couldn't be considered a spaghetti western. Clint chose the script because he'd been unhappy with the dark one-note gritty roles that he'd been offered in the wake of the Dollars trilogy. When Hang 'em High released in August, it gave the film's distributor, United Artists, its biggest opening weekend ever. It wasn't just westerns for the actor, mind you. His next big film was 1968's When Eagles Dare, which was a World War II film about a special ops team attempting to save a captured American general in the Alps. He also made a musical a year later, which was called Paint Your Wagon. I've not seen it, but I really like the visual of Clint Eastwood singing in a musical. So, um, yeah, that was a random one. But both of these films were directed by Don Siegel, and he and Clint would make several more films together as the years went by. Pause. 1971 was the year that changed everything for Clint. Again. The actor and his longtime accountant, Irving Leonard, were working on getting the film play Misty for me on its feet as the next Malpaso production. The film, which would feature jazz music extensively, would also give Clint the control over a film he'd been craving, as it would also be his directorial debut. Unfortunately, Leonard died in 1969, so he would not see his client step into the director's chair. In the film, Clint plays a jazz radio DJ who has an affair with a rabid fan who turns into a murderous stalker when his character ends their physical relationship. Financed by Universal, the film shot in Monterey in 1970 under the caveat that Clint direct the film for free, which he agreed to. He still got his acting fee, but he didn't get paid for directing. When Play Misty for Me released to positive reviews, it set up a long directorial career that's arguably more regarded than his acting one. But that's just probably because that's my experience around him and that's just what I'm familiar with. Also, he's actually never gotten a, an Oscar for acting, but he has gotten them for this. But, you know, spoilers. We'll get there. New career unlocked, the actor also first appeared in one of his most famous roles, which was in the film Dirty Harry from 1971. Clint took elements of his Western persona and threw it into modern-day San Francisco, where the actor plays a detective searching for the serial killer Scorpio, which was based on the Zodiac killer that had been terrorizing the San Francisco Bay Area for several years by this point. The character chases down bad guys in what you'd probably now call like a loose cannon fashion. And Clint performed all of his own stunts, including jumping onto a moving bus off of a freeway overpass. And of course, this film features the iconic Do You Feel Lucky monologue that you heard a bit of at the break. While described by critics as the actor's best performance to date, the film was critiqued for its violence and glorification of the police that some believed bordered on fascism. One of the film's loudest critics, a prolific film reviewer named Pauline Kale, called it fascist medievalism and a, quote, right-wing fantasy, and as a result became a lifelong critic of Clint's work. She would claim that his characters, amongst other things, have quote-unquote macho absurdity and that his directing was quote-unquote mediocre. 
Despite this, Dirty Harry had four sequels, Magnum Force, The Enforcer, Sudden Impact, and The Deadpool, which released from 1973 to 1988. Clint also directed the third sequel. Dirty Harry also led to an influx of similar films and cemented Clint as yet another beacon of masculine, quote-unquote, heroism. Clint's directorial debut in the genre that made him a star was 1973's western High Plains Drifter, in which he also starred. The film also had supernatural elements and sees the actor portraying a mysterious man who rolls into town where the people hire him to protect them against three soon-to-be-released criminals. The film harkens back to his days working with Sergio Leone, and while critically panned, the film was a box office smash. That same year, he also directed the film Breezy, which was a romantic comedy. This would set up Clint's ability to kind of do whatever genre he sort of felt like. As far as directing was concerned, he's pretty much done a little bit of everything. The basis for all these early films, though, were issues from his youth that he thought were still issues in his modern life. They were always pretty character-driven, featuring very nuanced individuals at every level, from the sidiest side character to the lead of the film. Nobody was perfect, even the quote-unquote hero of each film. Clint's movies also rarely belonged to just one genre. Basically, he made movies like himself and his public perception as a man with either very modern or very dated ideals, depending on what suited him from any, at any given moment. Despite being an established director, Clint would still appear in other directors' films, like Michael Cimino, who'd famously direct the 1980s disaster Heaven's Gate, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot in 1974, which was a road trip picture about a bank robber and a con man. Clint's co-star, a young Jeff Bridges, who played Lightfoot to Clint's Thunderbolt, outshone him in the film and received an Academy Award nomination. Clint did not, much to his chagrin, and vowed to never make another film for United Artists again, because that was totally their call. Clint's next major double duty as director and star was 1976's The Outlaw Josie Wales, in which he plays the titular character, who was a Missouri and pro-Confederacy farmer who seeks revenge on the people who killed his family. But Clinton start out as director on this film. Even before shooting commenced, he and the original director of the film, Philip Kaufman, kept butting heads over just about everything. And since Clint was a major star, was a financier of the film, and Kaufman was only like on his fifth film in the director's chair, Clint ended up having a bit more bargaining power. When the budget ballooned and shooting ran behind schedule due to Kaufman's slower directing style, Clint got him fired, despite the fact that Kaufman had been the one to adapt the novel the film was based on into the script. I'm sure it didn't help that both these men were chasing after the 32-year-old actress Sandra Locke, who was also starring in the film. Clint was 46-ish and Kaufman was 40, so old enough to know better. They were also both married at the time, but didn't look like that was going to stop either of them. With Kaufman gone, Clint stepped in. Clint ultimately got credited as the film's director. That's actually very hard to do if you're on a union shoot to get it changed from the original director to a different one, which resulted in a $60,000 fine from the Directors Guild due to the firing of Kaufman. The union also passed new legislation, reserving the right to impose a major fine on a producer for firing and replacing a director as a result of what happened during shooting. 
That hardly mattered, though, as when the Outlaw Josie Wales released in 1976, it was a massive hit with critics and audiences went wild. If I sound a little different right now, I apologize. The microphone just cut out in the middle of recording and I had a little baby heart attack because all of the audio sounded unusable, but that just seems to be like it was a little glitch and I think we're okay. All right. Whew. I've been talking for 30 minutes and I thought I was going to have to redo everything. Oh my goodness. Okay, here we go. Back to back to the thing. But if it sounds different, that's why I had to just reboot everything just now. Clint's first just full critical disaster during this major star era was the 1978 comedy Every Which Way But Loose. The film, which his representation pleaded with the actor not to do, saw him playing a trucker looking for his long lost love. Now a father of at least three children, or acknowledged children rather, the actor wanted to do something that kids could see. If the name of this film isn't familiar, it's the one with the poster of him with the orangutan because he's got an orangutan as a buddy for some reason in this movie. But despite just the critics obliterating it, the film was a hit with audiences and the second highest grossing film of that year. In 1978, Clint and Don Siegel teamed up for their final film together, which was Escape from Alcatraz, which is considered their best partnership and is based on the story of the only three individuals who probably maybe almost definitely escaped from Alcatraz. By the start of the 1980s, Clint was now seen as one of the industry's best directors with the actor asterisk that had accompanied that title for basically a decade at last removed. It was clear that Clint was no longer a directing actor or an acting director. He was actually a capital D director. Early 80s projects that he oversaw included the Western Honky Tonk Man from 1982 and Neo-Noir Tightrope, which released in 1984, though that wasn't credited, he did direct it. In 1984 also, divorce papers were filed between Clint and Margaret, though the couple had been legally separated for at least six years by that point. Clint and Sandra Locke, his co-star from Josie Wales, had started up an affair during production, and Margaret had realized that this wasn't just another fling this time. Hell, Clint had moved his girlfriend into the house he'd once shared with his wife when shooting wrapped, though Margaret didn't live there by that point. Clint and Locke worked together on several of his films throughout the 80s, and he also cheated on her extensively. This included an affair with a flight attendant that yielded two children, which were also kept secret for several years. Locke and Clint ultimately broke up in 1989, and she sued him for $1.5 million, claiming that she'd been forced to get abortions by the actor, which had rendered her infertile. Originally, it was claimed she'd done the procedures for medical reasons. Ever the petty, petty guy, Clint then paid Warner Brothers to bar the former actress from directing, which she'd started doing in 1986. The court ultimately sided with her, and Locke won tens of millions of dollars from her former lover. She also wrote a book about the relationship, which Clint paid extensively to get the rights for, to ensure it would never be released as a film or, you know, something else. Post all that, Clint's main focus has been directing. Since the early 90s, he has shifted his efforts towards making lower-budget films and a constricted amount of time. 
His crew is as minimal as is possible as well. He's also composed music for about half of these films. One of the first under this practice was 1992's Unforgiven, which pulled his career out of a lull it had been because of the other drama. Unforgiven had existed in script form since at least 1976, but the film kept getting delayed for a myriad of reasons. Basically, life happens. The script had originally been optioned by Francis Ford Coppola, but he was unable to procure the funds to shoot the film. Unforgiven sees Clint playing an aging ex-gunman past his prime. The film was a runaway hit on every level and was nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Director and Best Picture for Clint. These were also his first Oscar nominations after 40 years in the industry. He won both director and the film won Best Picture, and to this day is considered one of the best Westerns of the era. Clint had a brief relationship with an actress that yielded a daughter in 1993. In 1996, he married a news anchor 35 years his junior, and the couple had a daughter born not long after. They would divorce in 2014, and the reason for the filing was listed as betrayal. I think we all know what that means. Professionally, after Unforgiven, Clint's acting follow-up was in 1993's In the Line of Fire, which saw him earning the mantle of the highest-grossing actor of that year. Two years later, he appeared in Bridges Over Madison County opposite Meryl Streep, which was another acting highlight from this time. Totally not the best-received film in his career, but he was also the director and star of 2000's Space Cowboys, which was a very meh movie, but I remember loving it as a kid because I loved space. In the new millennium, Clint's first major directorial outing was Mystic River, which I didn't realize until this week or I'd forgotten that he directed it. That was around the time I was getting super into award season, and I remember the hubbub around this film, specifically Sean Penn's performance in it, but not that Clint was specifically involved. It was also the Return of the King year, so it was very much like all Lord of the Rings all the time. The following year was probably Clint Eastwood's career highlight in this era as he won Best Picture and Director for the film Million Dollar Baby. Clint also became the oldest director at 74 to accept the award. I think he still is older. Scorsese might be older now, but at the time he was the oldest. He followed that up by directing two well-regarded films, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima from 2006, that depicted World War II from both sides of the lines. In 1986, Clint had been elected the mayor of Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, which is just outside of Monterey, an office he held for two years. This was his first formal foray into the world of politics. He'd been a Republican from 1952 until 2008 when the actor became a libertarian, which has seen him showing opinions on both Democratic and Republican elections. The most memorable of these appearances, I think we can all agree, occurred in 2012 when he talked to an empty chair as if it were Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, which, you know, despite what side of the aisle you were on, that was really, really cringy to watch. Since Million Dollar Baby, Clint has directed several films, notably 2008's Gran Torino, 2014's Jersey Boys, which is based on the musical of the same name, 2016's Sully, 2018's The Mule, and 2021's Cry Macho. Currently, the 93-year-old is directing his 41st film, Jury Number 2. Like, maybe the day before I started going hardcore on this script, one of my best friends sent me a picture of him directing on set. He is he is 93 and he is still working like he's like 35. 
A controversial figure, given the choices he's made through his life, admittedly not great, some of them. The influence that Clint Eastwood has had on the film industry is long and it is profound. This dude is, you know, still alive and kicking, so this episode ends a little bit more, you know, vaguely than other episodes do, because as it stands today, Clint Eastwood... He's his career is still happening. This man created a more nuanced version of a cowboy, became the quintessential actor director of the modern filmmaking era, creating a series of memorable films in the process and shows absolutely no sign of slowing down. I think God would have to smite this man at this point to get him to stop working. Okay, if I'm going to take you on, you won't never regret it. Look, just listen to me. If I take you on... I promise I'll work so hard. God, this is a mistake already. Mm Mm-mm. I'm listening, boss. If I take you on, you don't say anything. You don't question me. You don't ask why. You don't say anything except maybe, uh, yes, Frankie. And I'm going to try to forget the fact that you're a girl. That's all I ask. And don't come crying to me if you get hurt. All righty. We got a deal. No, not quite. I'm going to teach you how to fight. Now we'll get you a manager and I'm off down the road. Well, I hate to argue with you, but... Don't argue with me. That's the only way we're doing it. I teach you all you need to know, and then you go off and you make a million dollars. I don't care. You get your teeth knocked out. I don't care. (laughs) I don't want to hear about it either way. That's just the way it's going to be. It's the only way I'll do it. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account, which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can find it at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you please rate, review, really could use some love on Apple Podcasts, please. And subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. That would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I'm having some cold brew at home, but I also, you know, like I said, I was out and about this morning visiting Le Baby and I had some coffee bean. It was lovely. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're going to try something new while asking a very important question. What was the best year for film ever? I've picked four years off-sided as the best year ever for film, and we'll take a look at each and decide which one was actually the best year ever, and what does a best year ever even look like? Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.